Well, we are uh, in, so in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians today, we're going to look at a few more verses. The plan is um, I will do one more week next week, and we even get to the end of chapter 1 by the end of by next week. I'm going to just do a brief review of last week. Uh, the only foil that I have is the this almost undiscernible map that you can't see unless you're right in the front here, but um, Corinth is right here. And it's hard to see, but there's a little inlet, water inlets right here, and there's a little piece of land called an isthmus that's holding, well, if this were standing up, it would be holding this piece of land on right down here. The little isthmus right there between this, I, this is modern-day Greece, and uh, Corinth was right on that isthmus we talked about last week, and we said because of its position on that isthmus, it was a a seaport. It had seaports on both the east and the west side, and there were uh, ships going to all parts of the known world and coming from all parts of the known world to Corinth. And so there were there was much affluence there, and there was much evil there. It was a very evil city. Uh, they, we had said last week that you you could, you'd actually, if you were come to be known as a Corinthian woman, it meant you were very immoral, highly immoral. Or if somebody said called you a Corinthian, that was a very derogatory term. It meant somebody who had uh, no morals whatsoever. And uh, the the occasion of the the letter of First Corinthians is uh, Paul writing to them to address to respond to a letter that they wrote to him while he was in Ephesus, uh, detailing some problems. And so if you look throughout 1 Corinthians, you will see a number of places where he says, now concerning this. And so he's addressing the points in the letter that they wrote to him. We don't have the letter that they wrote to him, but you can, it's like playing what's the game uh, where they give you the answer and you've got to come up with a question. Jeopardy. If you play a game like that, you can kind of discern what the questions are in a lot of cases, and we'll see that as we go along. Um, so he's, he's writing to address a number of problems that they're having in the church. And uh, the first, last week we looked pretty much verses 1 through 17, and the, he jumps right in after some introductory remarks uh, that, in my mind, turned out to be a little more important than just introduction. He got into the first problem, and that was division in the church. Uh, we had people that were followers of Paul because, and, and some of this is just, um, we're just sort of presuming that some people might say, well, I follow Paul because he's such a great Bible teacher. And others might say, I follow Peter because he's such a great evangelist. Or I follow Apollos because he was such a great speaker. And then the, the really self-righteous ones said, well, I don't follow any man. I follow Christ only. And uh, so they had just this division going on in the church. And he was writing to them how to, how to deal with that. And we kind of concluded at the end that if that the, uh, the the real answer to that whole problem and the answer to what we're going to throughout Corinthians and I'll probably repeat this a number of times was the was brought up in the first nine verses and if you read through the nine first nine verses and look at how many times he references Jesus Christ either by name Jesus Christ or referring to him it refers to him if I counted correctly ten times in those nine verses and and the importance of uh, getting the fundamental question of who is Jesus and is Jesus really truly Lord of your life is, is really a fundamental and very important issue and deciding that is a key issue and that's kind of the theme of the beginning was the Lordship of Christ. 
And if we have that, um, if we have that figured out, then we're going to be able to go on and deal with all these other issues and problems that come up. Um, today, this week's theme is we're going to go on just a little bit more and look at some more verses. And uh, I would say, at least in my mind, the, the theme as he continues on now, he kind of does a little bit of a shift in uh, in the end of 17 and 18 in, in some of the verses where, and, and the, I guess the way I would read it is, well, uh, you know, you've tried your your uh, worldly wisdom here, and look at where it got you. And I, again, I'm I, I, the scripture doesn't say these words. I'm just it's, this is the way I read it. You've got these divisions because you you know you try your worldly wisdom. Let let's get into a little discussion here about worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. And so there's kind of a little bit of switch here. And so the theme today is more looking at the contrast between worldly wisdom, uh, the wisdom of man, and the wisdom of God. And, uh, and I would say that, uh, so, so the theme really is how high above man's wisdom God's wisdom is. That's really where what it's about. Um, and our, our purpose, I guess, in looking at this, uh, I would say a purpose anyway out of looking at these scriptures would be for us to be able to come to the point like the last verse of 1 Corinthians 1 says that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And so we are looking at, you know, why uh, the, the Lord deserves us glorying in him and him alone because of the wisdom he has and because of the wisdom that we don't have. Uh, and so today our, our real purpose is going to be for us to be looking at glorying in and following after God and his wisdom and rather than our own. And make no mistake about it, uh, humans tend to, like I mentioned earlier, we tend to sometimes be over-impressed with our own wisdom, um, either individually or collectively as a, you know, as a human race. We're, we're over-impressed with our own wisdom and we tend to overestimate our own wisdom and our own knowledge. And we can do that in ways that where we're not, you know, we may not even think those specific thoughts. It's like, oh, I'm so wise, so therefore I'm going to do this or that. But we may act in ways that that uh, uh, makes it clear to us if we look that we are that that we put an awful lot of estimation on our own wisdom rather than on God's wisdom, and that can be in in, in many areas of life, and and that's. Not for me to tell you what areas of life that you need to deal with that, or it's between me and the Lord to areas of life where I need to deal with that. And so let's look at, uh, we'll read some verses here. We'll start again reading verse 17 and go through 21 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Um, I don't know that particularly this is a better place to stop than others, except for the fact that we're, we don't have you know five hours to go on to do all of 1 Corinthians. 
So we'll choose there to stop. And let's just look at a few, some of the verses and some of the thoughts that are here. And then at the end, what I want to do is uh, spend a, a little bit of time reading through, just reading through some scriptures that talk about worldly wisdom and that talk about godly wisdom so that we can compare them in our minds. So at the end, that's what I, I tend to do at the end, is just read some scriptures and, and uh, hopefully for the most part, let the scripture speak for itself. As we said last week in verse 17, Paul says he wasn't called to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And we noted last week that Paul was not, he wasn't downgrading baptism. He wasn't saying that baptism is not important. Um, but he was trying to avoid any credit that he might get by baptizing. Um, it, a thing of note here is that the pattern in the New Testament church was that the gospel was preached by Paul or others. The gospel was preached, people believed, and then they were baptized. That's the pattern of the New Testament church. It wasn't like, uh, you know, in later times the Roman church came along and they tried to gather all the infants together and baptize them first, which they claim saved them, and then teach them about God later on. That's getting, that's getting the order, and that's the wrong order. The gospel is preached, people believe, then they're baptized. Now, that's not to say that we, as a church that follows that pattern, is to get arrogant about it and, you know, and, and talk about other churches that don't follow that pattern, but to simply note that this is what the biblical pattern is and continue to follow it. That's always should be the case. We should want to follow the truth, never getting arrogant about the fact that um, or, or thinking that we have cornered the market on truth and that uh, clearly we think this is the best church to be in, otherwise we wouldn't be here. <laughs> so sometimes we can sort of get denominational pride, even though I, I would say we're not a denomination, but sometimes we can get denominational pride over where we go and everybody else is in these heathen churches. That wasn't the point of bringing that up. But it is definitely a pattern of Scripture, and so it's something that we ought to follow. It says at the end of 17 that Paul was very concerned that the gospel, the presentation of the gospel didn't go out in the wisdom of words. It says he was sent to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And an interesting quote from, from uh, I don't even know the guy's first name, Ironsides, on, on this. He said, when Paul, when he presented the cross, the doctrine of the cross, he did not want to hide it by beautiful verbiage, that means by wonderful speaking. He would not obscure the message by human eloquence, nor weaken or dilute it in any way by charming rhetoric. He did not desire people to go away exclaiming, what a brilliant preacher, what a splendid orator, instead of saying, what guilty sinners we are, and how amazing is the love of God that he sent his son to die and bear the shame of the cross for our redemption. That's really the intent of the, of the gospel, is, and that's the response that we should always have to whenever the gospel is spoken of, is not um, anything about, oh, what a great speaker somebody is if they are. It should always be, oh, what a sinner I am, or... If it happens to be a time when uh, the, the person speaking is talking about something other than specifically just the gospel and salvation or some other area of Christian life, the response ought to be, how, how is God speaking to me today? 
what, what is it that I'm supposed to take from this and go do? That should always be the response. There was a story told years ago of a gentleman who lived in the country in England. This is many years ago. And one time he went to London and listened to some of the great preachers there. And on a particular Sunday morning, he went and heard, um, and where I was reading the story, they didn't give the guy's name. It was a doctor or somebody who was one of the most eloquent pastors of that time. He was preaching at a church. He went to hear that, him in the morning. And then in the evening, he went to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And later he wrote to his wife and he said the following. He said, I was greatly impressed by both of them. Dr. So-and-so is certainly a great preacher, but Mr. Spurgeon has a great Savior. It's quite a difference there. And I think what Paul, what it's saying here about Paul is his intent was that people would hear the word and say, what a great Savior we have. That should be the response. Um, the fact that this is here indicates that speakers can spoil the message sometimes by things which appeal to the human mind or heart. You know, we talked about, Ironside talked about beautiful verbiage or charming rhetoric. Um, I think he said in there somewhere, even the most heathen person can appreciate a good speaker, you know, and, and appreciate and, and, and enjoy listening to someone speak, even if they don't agree with the message. But the point of the message is to get people to understand that they're sinners and turn to the gospel. It's not ever to get them to be impressed with the person who's speaking. Um, another quote he said, it's, it's as if Paul said, I don't want to decorate the cross with flowers and ribbons and tinsel so and make people lose sight of what it really is, the reality of what it really is. The declaration of man's utter depravity and the manifestation of God's infinite love. That is what Paul wanted people to see. Um, and as I thought about this, I thought, you know, this, this kind of an admonition isn't all on speakers. As people who are hearers, when we hear someone talk about the gospel, um, we, we have to be very careful not to get caught up into whatever this speaking is going on, but listen for the truth. Um, years ago, I took a, a listening class at IBM. I've taken a few classes there. Most of them have been pretty, pretty stupid, but this one... Uh, wasn't too bad, and it was talking about listening and how important listening is, and it's difficult to listen to some. And, and, it, and the whole point was some people are harder to listen to than others, but they still may have some truth to say, and you may have to work a lot harder to hear it, and that's just on the listener. You, may, you can't just always sit and listen. We can't always sit and listen and be entertained. We have to work at it and be listening for the truth. And so even if, so if somebody does come along and, and, and mess up the message, um, we've got to try to hear the truth that is there. So it isn't all just a speaker's problem. It is us as hearers sometimes too. Okay, verse 18, he goes, it's, it goes on to say, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to, unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Um, the word preaching there, it should really say, it's not talking about specifically the act of preaching. It's talking about the message that is being preached. So this is really saying, for the message of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. Um, and and I, I saw it really, them that perish should really be translated to those that are lost. 
uh, again, Greg, what you were saying earlier, you have to get people lost for them to get saved. If they don't think, if people don't think they're lost, they have no reason to turn to the gospel. Um, I remember when my son Josh was, he's working at Ironwood Springs, and last year actually got, he and his friend got the job of being the camp directors for the summer. And it sobered him up immensely being in, the one in charge. And uh, he, he was asking me about, he had to, they had to teach, and they were trying to come up with a message they were going to teach for a number of days in a row. And he asked me for my opinion, and I said, well, the only thing I can tell you is get them kids lost. Tell them about how lost they are. And so uh, Josh and his friend Adam, I was amazed. They, they, the first night, they, the message they gave, he just told the kids how lost they were, and they never told them about getting saved the first night. The whole message the first night was how lost they were. They had some kids coming up to them, begging them for the answer on the first night because they, they just preached about the depravity of man and about sin, and then they closed. And it's like, uh, man, I'm not sure I would have done that. <laughs> that that's really uh, taking a chance. But uh, they, he took it to heart and said, you know what, if, give, give, give them a time to go back and to reflect on this and to get lost, get really lost. And uh, so, uh, but to people that are really lost, this isn't really going to come out as great news to you, but people that are lost, you know, the message of the cross is foolishness. You, you've probably run across many people. It's just like, you know, the, the gospel is of no consequence to them. It, it's almost worse. I, I see different kinds of people at work. That's where I interact mostly with people outside of my own family, and, and I see many kinds of people that are um, antagonistic. I have one particular guy in my department, boy, you get him talking about anything that has to do with the, the gospel, and boy, he just gets very, just spews out anger against, I don't know whatever happened to him, but he just spews out anger against anybody who stands for the gospel. But then I know another guy who's a friend of mine who's just completely and utterly indifferent. It's just like it has have no concern. Him. It's just like, and, and it's almost worse to see somebody who is completely indifferent. The people that are angry and is spewing out venom at least are thinking about it, it seems. The other ones just seem like they're just, they don't care. They're lost and it's just foolishness. They don't even want to hear anything about it. And uh, so it's foolishness to people that are lost, to the lost, the people that they are lost. But, to, but when God moves our hearts, and we respond to the gospel that leads us to salvation. That is, that is a true miracle. That is the, I think that is the miracle that we should be the most concerned about. You know, there, uh, does God do other kinds of miracles today still? I mean, you look back in the, uh, in the New Testament time and you read, of course, during Jesus' ministry, he did many miracles. And I believe the, the reason he did those miracles was to validate him as the Son of God. It was to prove that he was the Son of God. Does God do those kinds of miracles of healings and those things today? Well, I think he does them a lot less than people claim. There's people out there claiming all sorts of things, and uh, but he probably does. But is that the most important? Is, is somebody getting healed physically the most important miracle that we should be looking for? Well, in my opinion, no. I think that the, uh, the true miracle is when, when a heart responds to the gospel. Uh, when God moves someone and it says, unto us which are saved, the power of gospel is the power of God. This foolish message is the power of God. That's really a true, true and the best miracle, I think, that we could see out there. 
Um, of course, the world is not going to accept this, and we just have to live with the fact that the world in general will not accept that. Uh, you've probably heard and seen how the world will call the gospel a crutch that weak people need. I think those are the almost the exact words that our former governor, Jesse Ventura, used one time about the gospel. It's just a crutch that weak people need, implying that he's so tough and so strong that he doesn't need it. And, and that's typically the message that you will get in the world, is that, no, I'm tough, I don't need that. I've actually had somebody <clears throat> uh, say to me once, ask me, do you actually try to follow what's in the Bible? Do you actually try to read this and follow it? And I said, well, yeah, I try. And he said, well, I have never done that, and things have gone just fine with me my whole life. Just thought, well, anyway. Uh, let's go on to verse 19. It says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. It's interesting, this word wisdom that's used throughout these verses here is the exact same word, although it's clear that sometimes he's talking about God's wisdom and sometimes he's talking about man's wisdom. So it's the exact same word, exact same Greek word. It's just the context tells you whether he's talking about worldly wisdom or God's wisdom. And here, here he says that God's wisdom will always prevail. The wisdom of the wise of the world, man's worldly wisdom, will, will in God's timing be destroyed. Now, do we see that all the time? No. It, now we don't always see that, but we do now and then get glimpses of this, the truth of this verse. Um, these, these two examples I'm going to give, I'm doing from memory, so I might have a couple of the uh, particular particulars wrong because uh, it's funny, my daughter Marta and I were just talking the other day about how, how life works. When you're looking, when there's something you're looking for, you can't find it. The only time you find it is when you're not looking for it. And so I know I've got these examples somewhere, but when you want them, you can't find them. But, and I, so I think this first example, I think, it was about the philosopher Voltaire. I'm not sure. It was, it was a philosopher, a worldly philosopher. I think it was Voltaire who claimed that in a hundred years, the Bible would be wiped off the face of the earth, that he thought it was foolishness. And uh, he was, he, he worked at trying to get rid of any influence that the gospel had. He said the Bible will no longer exist in a hundred years. Well, as time passed, Voltaire went the way of all flesh. He died, and a Bible printing society took over his house and used it to print Bibles and to distribute more Bibles around the world. I thought that was, that was quite interesting. And that's, you know, that's just sort of a small example of God's wisdom saying, yeah, where's Voltaire? We got a Bible printing society printing out scripture and, and spreading them around the world. And then I read one, to, I believe the year was around 1760 or 1761, the French Academy of Science declared that the Bible was not true. And they gave 10, and for the reasons, they gave 10 scientific facts that they said proved that the Bible was not true. Well, as time went by, all 10 of their facts were disproved by science itself. I thought that was pretty good, too. Examples of how God's wisdom prevails, man's wisdom gets brought to foolishness. Now again, does this, does this always happen, you know, instantaneously? No. God, we know that as, as the world goes on, God's timing, uh, 
God's timing, everything works in God's timing. So we don't always see it. But now and then we get glimpses of the truth of that scripture. Verse 20, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Again, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Uh, the words wise and then scribe and disputer, these were the reasoners, the great thinkers, trying to reason out man's purpose for existence. That's the whole, uh, that's the whole purpose of philosophy. You know, people are out there trying to determine what is man's purpose? Why is he here and what is he there? You know, all these great thinkers are trying to think of. And the word scribe would refer to a Jewish wise man. Uh, these were the religious leaders who were trying to work out a path to salvation through all of their rituals and rules. I mean, I haven't done a study of all the rules and things that uh, the, these, the scribes and the Pharisees came up with, but they had a rule for everything under the sun. I mean, they, they took what was in the, in the, in their, in the, in the scripture that they had, and they just added rule after rule after rule. And then people were supposed to try, have to follow all that to try to get to heaven. The disputers, these were Greek philosophers. Again, these were the thinkers. They were proud of their learning and their science and their thinking. I, it reminds me of that when we watched that video on the, where the guy was talking about some of the deadly questions to ask people when he was talking to the atheist. Well, how do you know you're, how do you know you're right? Because I think. I'm a thinker. Because I'm smart. And I just thought, oh boy. Uh, anyway. Um, the disputers and the scribes, God certainly has taken their wisdom and made it into foolishness. But again, the world is deceived and doesn't see it in many cases. Um, <laughs> a guy asked me one time, if you're deceived, would you know it? Think about that. That's a, that's a philosophical question for you to ponder. <clears throat> But I guess I would say, even as you think about that, well, perhaps not, but you can be enlightened if you turn to the truth. If you read the scripture, you can find out that you were deceived. At the moment you are deceived, I would say you probably don't know it, but when man's wisdom can't make things better, I think the instinct is to just turn around and blame it on the Christians. It's got to be the Christians' fault. It's just amazing the things you hear. I know... Now, this is just one example, Planned Parenthood. When, when Planned Parenthood's philosophy of, of going into the schools and providing all of, the, uh, you know, all of their counseling and handing out condoms and all this for, to try to deal with the, pros, the, the uh, problems of, of uh, sexually transmitted diseases, pregnancy outside of marriage, they're trying to deal with all these. And then since they've been around doing all this, that rate is just going up up and up. And so then they, they say, well, it's all the Christians' fault, all these fools trying to teach abstinence programs and stuff. It's all their fault. You, you see it in the world all the time. The, the wisdom of man is, is foolish. And have you ever said, I don't understand why these people can't see this. This is so idiotic. How can anybody really believe this, whatever it is? Um, well, it's because they're perishing. They're lost. And the uh, they're deceived, and it doesn't make us better than them. What's the old bumper sticker? Christians aren't better than everyone else. They're just, how does that go? They're just uh, forgiven. Christians aren't, how does that one go? Well, the Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I, just 
occurred to me as I was standing here. And he goes on in verse 21, he says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Um, again, the, the words foolishness of preaching are, it really means the foolishness of the message. It's not, it's not foolish preaching. It's the foolishness of the message of the cross. Um, in, in the world's eyes, that's foolishness. And by that foolishness, we, uh, we get saved when we respond to, to the Father. Okay, I wanted to, uh, since the theme in, in this is kind of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, I'm going to read some scriptures. Uh, the quote in, in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, is found in Isaiah. He's really quoting the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 29. And what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to quickly turn through some scriptures and read them. And hopefully, for your sakes, make minimal comments about each one so the scripture can, can speak for itself. But the, uh, there's some scriptures that talk about worldly wisdom, and these are by no means all of them. These are just ones that I have found and looked through that speak about worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. First, worldly wisdom, Isaiah 29, 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Flip ahead to Isaiah 47, 6. Isaiah 47, 6. I was wroth with my people. I have polluted mine inheritance and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy upon the ancient. Hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. And thou saidst, I shall be a, a lady forever, so that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst remember the latter end of it. Therefore hear now this, that thou art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thy heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection, for the multitude of thy sorceries, and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee. Thou shalt not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. Man's wisdom and the result. Uh, Jeremiah 4, 22. Single verse, Jeremiah 4, 22. God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to his people. For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. Man's, man's wisdom leads to evil. It leads to foolishness. Uh, Ezekiel 28. We'll get into the New Testament here too. Uh, Ezekiel 28. One. 
the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic hast thou increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die the death of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Again, the result of man's wisdom tends to puff him up and lead to the getting of riches, and uh, it leads to forgetting God, setting himself up as God. That's a real key uh, thing that the New Age movement talks about. They want to talk about the man as being the center of all things and being the most important. And speaking of which, turn to Romans chapter 1. This is kind of a famous, uh, people want to, talk about uh, the definition of humanism from the Bible, Romans chapter 1. Now, there's a lot of verses here, but I'll just start reading in verse 21. <clears throat> Excuse me once. Sorry. Verse 21, Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Um, that is where man's wisdom leads. It's a real definition of humanism. Worshiping and serving the creature more than the creator. And then uh, let's one more on worldly wisdom. To flip to James chapter 3, 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Interesting, kind of ties into 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The very first problem that Paul dealt with was strife in the church, division and strife in the church, where the envying and strife is there is confusion in every evil work. And that's, that is, that's, that's the wisdom of man. That doesn't, that's not the wisdom that comes from God. It comes from, from uh, the devil. It says, it says it right here. 
Okay, a couple of verses on, okay, let's get flip back to Isaiah, and we'll look at a few verses uh, talk about godly wisdom. Some of them refer to specifically to Jesus and others. Uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1. Familiar verses. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Speaking of our Lord. Hosea 14, verse 9. That's the last verse of Hosea, Hosea 14.9. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things, prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. Those who are seeking out, of course, the scripture talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. Those who are walking in that godly wisdom will have understanding. Um, understanding of the things of God shall know them. That is a promise of the scripture. Many places. Matthew chapter 7. Again, familiar verses. Matthew, Matthew 7, 24. A little Bible drill today. should be able to turn to every verse I mention in two seconds. Just kidding. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Uh, solid foundation. Godly wisdom leads to a solid foundation in your life. This is not rocket science, by the way, but it is true. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 33 few more verses here. Eleven thirty three. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Uh, he's talked in this chapter of Romans about the uh, how there is a remnant, a remnant of Israel saved, but then how how some of the uh, Gentiles have been grafted into the into the uh, to the grafted into the vine and saved not because of the uh, 
not because of the fact that the Jews disbelieved, but because of their own belief. The Jews were removed because of unbelief, and the Gentiles grafted in because of belief. That was the beginning of this chapter, and he concludes in that way about the wisdom and knowledge of God and how unsearchable are his ways. And so he's talking about salvation throughout that verse, and then talking about the wisdom of God and how unsearchable it is. Second uh, Timothy 3.15, again, ties in the, the tie-in to salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15. I think it's starting 14. But, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then again, 16 and 17, very familiar verses, but it's the wisdom of God leads unto salvation. And again, I believe it ties right back into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because the, uh, the important thing that in Paul's life was the preaching of the message of the cross. And it's interesting how in our, uh, in our remembrance time this morning, how that, that came out. It was really brought out. and That was kind of the theme today of the reality of the cross and what the cross really means. And, and when we look at the cross, seeing the reality of the utter depravity of man. And we are, we are, as the scripture says, guilty of every sin. We are guilty of breaking the whole law. And yet in spite of that, uh, God loved us so much that he saved us. That, that is the message that he's talking about here. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think it's a mistake that it's at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. This is really... Well, clearly, it's foundational to everything Christian, that the message of the cross and uh, getting the lordship of Christ uh, firmly decided in our minds is, is foundational to dealing with every issue. And then one, oh, I was, one last verse was right, we were in James before, and then the verse right after what I read in James 3. The last one I'll talk about. And those were the verses that said this bitter envying and strife and how that wisdom is devilish. It's sensual. It's worldly wisdom. Then verse 17 says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So the... the uh, the, the contrast in the scripture between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, as it was being discussed in 1 Corinthians about how obviously God's wisdom will always prevail and he will make foolish the wisdom of the wise. Uh, as I was looking through this, again, part, part of trying to, and, I, and I'm not saying that I'm good at this at all, but part of trying to do an expository message is there should be a theme, but the theme isn't what I feel like having a theme be. It's, well, what is the Scripture talking about today? And, uh, and given the time we have, I guess what I concluded was, and what I, what I would think I would call all of us to at this point, is to, uh, to reevaluate or to look again at, at this wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. Now, I, I probably haven't said anything here really earth-shattering that anybody, I don't think, anybody would really disagree with tremendously. 
but but again, it's it's so easy to say, oh yeah, I uh, godly wisdom is great and worldly wisdom and I, I I want to stay away from that. But where the real rub comes is how do we live our lives every day? What, every decision that we make, where are we really putting our our trust? What what wisdom are we really relying on? And and so what I'm I guess what I'm I'm asking for today is as the scripture talks about these two kinds of wisdom, we should think and pray about where, what, where do we really put our trust? What wisdom are we really relying on? What areas of our life are we making decisions in where what we're, what we're really trusting in is our own wisdom or, our, or worldly wisdom or some other wisdom that we're getting from a place that isn't from God? <clears throat> and it can be in subtle ways. I'm not, I'm not even going to give any examples because I don't want to taint the you don't want to taint it. They, in every area of our life, and each one of us is different. And so that's really what the call is today, is to, is, to, is to think and to pray about that and ask God to reveal those areas of our life because, you know, if we, if we need wisdom, the Scripture in James says we ask for it and then believe God that he gives it to us. And so he will reveal those kinds of things to us. And, and it should, the, the, the gospel should be very practical. We're saved, but then as we walk every day, it should be very practical. What areas in my life do I need to perhaps change? I need to change some views. I need to change some decisions that I'm making because the, <clears throat> the wisdom that I'm basing my decisions on is not from God. And, and so though that's what I'm really, <clears throat> well, that's what I concluded. <laughs> Whether that's uh, right on or not, I concluded that out of reading about godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. So I'll, I'm just going to pray. And then uh, if, you know, if God brings it to your mind, today or, or during the week, that would be something to think about and to pray about because we all need to do that from time to time. It's, it's easy to get caught up, to perhaps, I think, sometimes to being like the Pharisees were, where we're going about our religious duty and getting away from our understanding of who God is and who Christ is.